I'm going to finish off our series, uh, What Do You Value? Uh, we're just looking at uh, different areas of lives that we should place value on. Uh, Pastor Matt started with valuing the work that God has done in our lives and having a value on the work. Pastor Dan uh, next was valuing prayer and the importance of prayer and, and really having value on prayer. Uh, Brother Manny uh, ministered on a message called uh, Valuing Gathering Together, Take Me to Church, the value of being here in the house of God. And then last week, Pastor Matt uh, continued with value consistency. So when you look at the word value, it's the beliefs people have, especially about what is right and wrong and what is most important to life. It's your value system. You know, what do you look at as most important? What is that great value? It's the price or cost of something. It's the worth of something. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, it talks about David's mighty man. And in verse 11, it talks about a man here. Next in rank was Shammah, the son of Agi from Harar. One time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites in the field full of lentils. It says the Israelite army fled. It says they just fled. The whole Israelite army just fled. But Shammah held his ground. He stayed there in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines so that the Lord brought about great victory that day. And here we read that the Philistines attacked the Israelites in this field of lentils. And I wasn't really familiar with lentils. I've heard it so many times, so I actually looked it up. And it says lentils are part of the legume family. They're beans, peas, soybeans, chickpeas, you know, etc. Uh, it says that lentils have a delicious flavor. They provide plenty of nutrients, such as protein, iron, uh, vitamins A and B. And it says that lentils were enjoyed by all. They were served on the tables of both those in poverty, but also royalty. Everybody enjoyed the, ling- uh, the lentils. And it says that even Esau sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for some bread and a stew of, of lentil stew. So as we see how the Israel army fled, they just didn't really think that, that that field of lentils was really worth it. It wasn't really worth fighting for. But Shama placed value on that field of lentils. This was something that was important to him. He knew the, the, the field belonged to Israel. He knew that, the, that this was God's provision for Israel, but also he took it personal that that was God's provision for my family also. And he knew and he took his place in the middle of the field and he stood his ground and he started to beat back the Philistine army. And what happened was that God gave him great victory that day. Tonight I want to look at, as we talk about what do you value, I want to talk about valuing relationships. I'm going to look at some different relationships in our lives and look at the value that we place in them because we got to understand and ask ourselves, what value do we place on the relationships that God has given us? When the the enemy comes and tries to destroy these relationships, are we willing to stand our ground and be in that middle of that spiritual uh, battlefield and fight back the army because we know the Lord is with us? And tonight, this is not an elbow message. So when I start ministering, don't start elbowing your spouse and say, he's talking to you, okay, your kids. Hey, he's talking. Start texting your kids. Hey, you better listen. Let's look at ourselves in the mirror and say, hey, you know what, God? How does this apply to me? Because when you start doing that, you're just going to turn off your spouse. You're going to turn off your kids. You're just going you know, you're just gonna say, you know what, I'm not going to listen now. So don't put the elbows away and just kind of look at ourselves and see how, we, how it relates to us. The first thing I want to look at is our relationship with our spouse. It was George Barna from the Barna Group did a study, and he directed a study on marriage and divorce. He noted that Americans have grown comfortable with divorce as a natural way of life. That this is the Americans today that just, you know, we go into marriage, but, you know, divorce is just a natural part of life. There's just really no hope for marriage. He says there's no longer, there no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an avoidable rite of passage. The researcher indicate interviews with young adults suggest 
that they want their initial marriage to last, but not, they're not particularly optimistic about that possibility. So they say, yeah, we kind of want our marriage to last, but we, we, we go into it already thinking and knowing that it's not going to last. There's also evidence that many young people are moving towards embracing the idea of serial, serial marriage. And what that is is a person gets married two or three times seeking a different partner for each phase of their life. So when they're a young adult, they have the one spouse, and then they get to their 30s and 40s, and then they got another spouse, and then their senior years, they get another spouse, and that's where the mindset that these people have. His studies show that there's importance and value in preparing for marriage. He says that, that he said, as he did the study, he understood that, you know, there's great value in getting premarital counseling. There's value in getting some teaching on marriage. He says, but it seems to be falling on deaf ears. America has become experimental, experience-driven culture. Rather than learning from the objective information and teaching based on that information, people prefer to follow their instincts and let the chips fall where they may. We're living in a time where marriage is not valued as highly as it used to be. They got people come into marriage with the attitude, if it lasts, it lasts. I, I, I quite often get couples who will ask me, you know, can you marry us? And it's mainly a lot of family members. But they'll come and ask me, can you, can you marry us? And I tell them, well, you know, we have guidelines to marriage, you know. You got to get premarital counseling. You got to, you know, talk to somebody and sit down, you know, and, 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 and do this. And I said, if you're serious about marriage and you're serious about getting married, then you need to follow these guidelines. And 100% of the time, oh, we'll, we'll go somewhere else and get married. See, the reason I do this is because I take marriage seriously. You know, I take it seriously. I'm not going to be up here, hey, you know, you know, you guys are married, and you guys are married. No, I'm not going to be like that. I take marriage seriously because we make a vow before God and witnesses. Barna's study says there is value in preparing for marriage. I'm not going to put my stamp on approval on a couple who's not serious enough to get premarital counseling. You know, oh, if it works, it works. No, if you're serious, get the premarital counseling, follow the guidelines, and then we'll talk about marrying you. Can't do it? I'm sorry. You know, you just go to the courts. See in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, right from the beginning of creation, God then made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are not, no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God has joined us together. God has put us together. God doesn't want us to come in with the mindset that, hey, if it lasts, it lasts. You know, let's see where the chips may fall. The devil's goal is to destroy marriages, that we become just another bad statistic. But we got to be like Shama. We got to be willing to fight for our marriage and place great value on it, you know, and really say, you know what, my, my, val my marriage is worth fighting for. If you're in a, in a situation where there's abuse, neglect, my advice to you is you need to seek counseling from your pastors or pastor wives. You really do. You know, don't just make decisions. But get some counseling. Get some insight. Uh, and, and really seek some, some guidance, some godly counseling if you go through that. But again, we need to value our marriage. Again, we need to remember our vows. I was looking up some of the vows, marriage vows, and I came up with, I cannot come up, but I found this one. It was pretty good. It says, I state your name. Take you, state your name, to be my husband and wife. And it's these things that we said before God. It says, to have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy law, 
in the presence of God and witnesses, I make this vow. I want to take a look at some of the vows here. Just take a look at about three of them. The first one I look at is to love and to cherish. Because again, in marriage, we need to love and cherish one another. In Ephesians 5.33, it says, So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I found the Amplified Version, and I really like this version because it gives a really, really good definition here. He says, however, each man among you, every man that is married here, without exception, there's no loopholes, there's no way getting out of this, is to love his wife as his very own self with behavior worthy of respect and esteem, always seeking the best for her, an attitude of loving kindness. And the wife must see to it that she respects and delights in her husband, that she notices him and prefers him and treats him with loving concern, treasuring him and honoring him and holding him dear. So when you look at to love and cherish, to love and cherish is to love or to hold as dear. It's to have that feeling that, 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 that feeling that you still get as when you first laid eyes on each other, when you first knew you were in love, to still have that same feeling. That when you look at each other and say, man, you still are in love with one another. Why? Because your spouse is so important to you. Your spouse is so valuable to you. You know, you gotta be, you, know, you gotta love being in their presence. You know, it's like sometimes I'm driving home and I just can't wait to get home. You know, because my wife, right away, as soon as we get home, it's like, we give each other a kiss. It's like, I can't get wait home. I can't wait to get home from work. There's some of you, man, you take the long way home. You know, it's like, whoa, I'm taking the long way. Looking up on Sigalert, where they, see where there's traffic jams. Oh, I got stuck in a traffic jam. You got to love and cherish your wife. You really do. You got to go back to those days when you just like first laid eyes on your spouse. And it's like, wow, you know, and, and it still have that feeling. To love and cherish is to embrace, embrace with affection. Your spouse wants your affection. It's letting them know how much they're loved. You gotta let them know how much they're loved. I tell them how much you love them. It's giving of your time to them, your quality time. It's not five minutes, okay, let's get five minutes, but having some good, long conversations with one another, being a good listener to, with your spouse, having fun with one another. It's to embrace them with affection. I know brothers only think of one thing, but it's just more than that. Your spouse needs your love and affection. Why? Because, again, we're fighting for our marriage. To love and cherish is to protect. Our spouse needs to feel secure with us. One of the ways we can show them, or one of the ways they know that they are secure is when they know that we are a man and a woman of prayer and we're praying over them. That our spouse knows that, man, my husband is praying for me. My wife is praying for me. My wife and husband, we're, we are both praying for our kids, our grandkids, our families. And that brings security because you know that they're covering you in prayer. We got to protect our spouse. I remember one time, I know she's going to get mad for sharing this story. It was after a Friday night service. We went to, we were at a, back when the ATMs had just started. So I was at the ATM machine, and I'm there, and we had our van, and Tina and the boys are in the van. And I go to the ATM machine, and all of a sudden, these two guys just start walking towards me. And the first thing I thought, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna try to jump me or something. So it was one guy was about my size and a guy about a little shorter. So I'm thinking in my mind, okay, I'm going to drop this little one, and then I'm going to go toe-to-toe with the big one. That's what, you know, that's, that's, the flesh came out. I, I didn't think about praying for them. I just said, hey, I'm, I'm here to defend my wife and family. So they start walking towards me, and all of a sudden, I hear the van door opening up. Sister Tina's getting ready to throw down, too. She's getting off the van. <laughs> it's true. And I'm like, oh, my God. 
so what happened was they started walking, but all of a sudden, and it had to be God because a security card, security guard came around the other corner, and they just, they just took off. And I'm driving home, and I'm like, man, my wife's bad. You know, I'm like, I'm safe, man. I'm secure. I'm protected. Thank you, Jesus. Sister Tina, amen. Your spouse needs to feel protected, amen, by you. Brothers need to work to protect your family. They need to be secure and, and understand that. And, and understand if, if it's just hard time, but if, if you're able to, you need to work. To love and to cherish is to honor and show high respect. You got to honor and show high respect to your spouse. One night we were fellowshipping, a group of us. All the sisters were in the house and all the brothers were outside in the backyard and we we're talking. And there was a brother that just started complaining about his wife. I mean, he was just going on and on, just complaining about his wife and, you know, saying things about her. And there was a single brother there, and we're just talking and listening to what he's saying. And the single brother says, hey, if you don't want her, I'll take her. I'm like, ooh, man. And he goes, and, you know, I know there's a lot of other single brothers that take her too, as much as you're complaining about her. And I start backing up. Oh, my God, there's going to be a fight right now. But the brother just got like, ooh, he just like got humbled by that. And... It's funny, but today they're like close friends. They're still here today. They're both really good friends. They're both good friends of mine. But I always remember that, to honor and show respect. And that doesn't mean to start complaining about your spouse to other people. Because when we start complaining about our spouse to other people, it's going to open up a bad door. Because what's going to happen is the wrong person is going to hear it, and they're going to try to make their move on, on your spouse. We can't be making complaints about our spouses to other people. When Shammah stood in the field of lentils, God was with them. He was alone, but he was with God. And sometimes you may feel like you're all alone, but God is with you. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, give all your worries and cares to God because he cares for you. When you want to start complaining, start praying to God. Start saying, God, you know what? I feel this way. I, I need your help. And then God begin to deal with it because what's going to happen is God's going to start dealing with you. God's going to say, hey, you need to change a little bit, buddy. You need to change. Can't complain about our spouses to other people. Again, to love and cherish is to show that honor and respect. And what kind of honor and respect are we showing them when, we, when they're not around? What are we doing when they're not around? Who are we talking to when they're not around? I had a, a coworker um, before I had my office. Uh, his locker was next to mine. So each morning we'd, you know, ch you know put our boots on, whatever, and then after work, we'd be there. So his locker was right next to mine, so he'd open up his locker, and, and all he had was pictures of girls in bikinis. That was his locker, a bunch of girls in bikinis. I had my locker, and it was all my wife and kids. It was before I had grandkids. It was just me and my wife and kids. And finally, one day, I asked him, hey, is that your wife? He's like, oh, hey, man, you know, hey, bro. So I told him, hey, let me ask you a question. What if you were to tragically die on a job site? Because we work with heavy equipment. I go, what if you suddenly got crushed by the backhoe and you died, and your wife and kids had to come clean your locker. How do you think that would make your wife feel? <laughs> he just looked at me, and I don't know if he was mad or what, but a couple days later, his locker was full of drawings from his kids. But we need to honor and respect our spouse, even when they're not around. You know, we gotta, you know what are we doing? Who are we talking to? What are we watching? We got to honor and respect our wife because we value our relationship with our spouse. We need to encourage one another. To love and cherish is, is also to encourage. We got to be each other's greatest encouragement. Uh, we can't be putting each other down, constantly criticizing one another. Uh, there's some that just are always just criticizing each other, putting each other down. But we got to encourage one another. 
Because if we're going to, you know, strengthen our marriage, we got to, got to encourage each other. You know, you can do it. Everything's going to be all right. God is in, in control, you know, and really, really encourage one another. We got to be each other's biggest encouragement. You know, we got to be there to just support and, hey, man, you know what? God is with us. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. To love and to cherish is also to treat with tenderness and kindness. We can't be short-tempered with one another. You know, always snapping at each other. You know, we got these anger issues. We, we got to stop bickering with one another. We got to show each other tenderness and kindness. Nehemiah says, this is a sacred day before the Lord. Don't be dejected or sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You got to have the joy of the Lord in your home. You got to establish that in your home for your family because it will bring strength to your family. It will be strength to your home. We got to stop with the bickering and complaining and, 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 and criticizing one another and start to encourage one another and treat each other, treat each other with tenderness and kindness. Second thing I want to look at when it comes to our vows is in sickness and health. In marriage, one of us may get seriously sick. And I really honor and respect those who are caring for a spouse that is ill. And I just, my heart goes out to those that are, are caring for a spouse that is sick or ill, that they have to take care of them. Because I understand the work that's involved. I understand that there's heartache at times. There could be discouragement. Uh, you could feel like Shama. You could be, feel like you're standing in the middle of a field fighting alone for their healing. But you do it because you know God is with you. You do it because you do it out of love for your spouse. You do it because you're honoring the vows that you made before God. You're willing to do it because you say, God, I am willing to stand by myself, my spouse's side in sickness and health. And if, unfortunately, one of, your, one, one of the spouses gets seriously ill, you say, you know what, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to fight for my spouse. I had an old friend many years ago. His wife had gotten pretty sick. And I seen him, I was talking to him, hey, how's your wife doing? And I'm thinking, oh, you know, just believing God for prayer. I'm praying for her and believing God for healing. Um, you, know, you know, help me pray for her. But this is what he told me. He goes, well, I figure it this way. If she dies, I'll wait two years and mourn, and then I'll get married again. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. He was like the Israelites. He bailed out already. I'm thinking, man, here, I'm going to pray for my wife, believe God for my wife. But he's like, well, if she dies, she dies, and I'll just get married again. He already checked out. He was already probably shopping for another wife. And what's sad about this is a few years later, he ended up dying. He is the one that ended up dying. I don't know if his wife ever got remarried, but I just thought about that. I go, man, here you are bailing out on your wife, and you ended up dying. If sickness comes, it's no time to check out on your spouse. You got to stand there and fight with them, fight for them, you know, and get encouraged by each other. And the last thing I want to vows that I want to look at is till death do us part. We are in this to the very end, till death do us part. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The barn of study says that many go into marriage with the mindset that they will have different spouses for every stage of your life. This is a lifelong commitment we made before God and to our spouse. It wasn't to love and cherish and to see how it goes, but it was to love and cherish till death to us part. We need to understand we made this vow before God, before witnesses. We made this to our spouse, and we say, you know what, I value you. I value my relationship with you, and I'm willing to fight for you, and we're going to stay in this till death do us part. The second relationship I want to look at is relationship with our children. Psalm 127.3 says, Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward for him, from him. 
God has given us such a precious, valuable gift, which is our children. Some say until they become teenagers, but, you know, I won't say that. But again, God has given us a precious gift, which is our children. And we need to value our relationship with our kids. In Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is a time we are living in today. We see where good is being called evil now. Evil is being called good. All those who stand for godly morals, those who live according to the word of God are being called evil today. You know, people get their feelings hurt because we stand for what's right. And it just amazes me of what I'm seeing in the media and seeing uh, all the attitudes that people are taking and all the, the, the different things that are starting to enter into our schools for, with the kids. See, we see the assault and the pressure on our children and our grandchildren to get them to turn away from God. There's a great assault. There's a great pressure on them to say, you know what? You don't need to serve God, you know, because, you know, what you guys believe is, is evil. You know, your godly morals are evil. See, our kids have to diff, deal with some different issues in life. One of them's having to deal with self-esteem issues, low self-esteem. This is the way they look at themselves. Due to the world's unrealistic expectation about appearance, uh, they have, they're pressured to look a certain way. You know, they talk about body shaming, cancel culture, uh, being excluded. You know, it has an effect on them. It has an effect on their self-esteem. One of the things that really has a direct effect on their self-esteem is the way we as parents talk to them. By putting them down, you know, making statements like, you're worthless, you're lazy, you're dumb. I knew you would give up, but you never finish what you start. A lot of people think this approach is actually motivating them. If I put them down, I'll get them mad enough, and then they'll start, you know, changing. But all you're doing is, yes, you're angering them, and you're driving a wedge in your, in, 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 in your relationship with them. But also, it has a great effect on their self-esteem, because when they hear this from us, they start to feel that way. Well, if my parents feel that way about me, I must be that way. What happens, they begin to isolate themselves. They start withdrawing from family, and they start making some bad decisions because the, the, the effect of the things and the way we talk to them we need to build them up. We need to let them know that they are valuable. You know what? I, I, speak life to them. Speak things that are positive to them. You know what? I know you can do it. When they got to do a task or something in school or a project, say, you know what? I know you can do it. You, 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 I have all the confidence in the world in you. When they do something, let them know, hey, good job. That was a good effort that you did. You want to give them praise. You want to lift them not up, not tear them down. Psalm 139, 14. I praise you, for I'm, fear, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful of your works, my soul knows it very well. You need to let them know that you are very unique. You are wonderfully made by God. You are precious to God. In Matthew 5.29, it says, are, not, are, are two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them fall to the ground from your father? But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. We got to let our children know how valuable they are to us. Because we got to value our relationship with our children. But they need to know how valuable they are because the world constantly telling them, you're worthless, you're no good. You know, you go to that church and, you know, that Christian life, it's not worth it. And, 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 and they hear all the negative. We got to say, no, serving God is good. We also got to deal with the choice of friends. Kids, kids are going to pick their own friends. I mean, we can't pick their friends for him. I can't go up to you and say, hey, brother, you're going to be his friend, and you're going to be his best friend for the rest of his life. Like, who is this guy? I don't know this guy. 
Our kids are going to pick their friends. It's just the reality of it. We're, we're not going to... We're not going to be able to say, this is who you hang around with, and this is who you hang around with, and these are going to be your two best friends. No, it doesn't work that way. But as parents, we need to teach them the value of true friendship. We need to teach them the value of what a real friend is. We need to teach them the value of, of how a good friend will keep you out of trouble. A good friend will be truthful with you. A good friend will look out for your best interest. A good friend will help you to excel and help you to serve God. That's what a good friend is. First Corinthians says, be not deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And when you start letting them know, man, if you start hanging around with the wrong crowd, it's going to corrupt you. It's going to cause you to make bad decisions. You know, I can't pick your friends, but I can influence you and let you know, hey. And again, yeah, if, if somebody, I mean, they have somebody that's really bad, getting them in trouble, you, know, you just separate them from that. Say, hey, I'm sorry. You just can't hang around with them. But again, they're still going to be their friend. But we just, we don't let them hang around with them. So again, bad company corrupts good, good morals. Again, kids deal with boredom. Christians in motion pictures, TV, and the, and the news are portrayed as boring people. If you really look at it, when you show TV shows and they show a Christian family, they're always prudish, they're snobs, they're uncool, uh, they're behind in the times, they're out of touch with reality. Uh, basically, they're people living in a box. One of the shows, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, is, is for everybody to watch that show, the, the Robert's in-laws, you know, they're Christian family, but they make them look like just... Terrible people, you know, just squares. And that's the, 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 the image that Hollywood, that, that, that the news, that the world tries to paint of Christianity. But you know what? To us, we know that's just a lie from the pit of hell. That's just a straight-up lie. You know, I gave my life to the Lord in 1988. I was 24 years old. I was a young man, 24. I didn't know anything. But I gave my life to Jesus, and I've had the best time of my life. My life and my family's life is anywhere, anywhere Far from being boring. Our life is not boring. I've had a great time serving God. I just turned 58, so what's about, I don't know, I'm not good at math, so anyway. Somebody figure it out. Hurry up. 24 and 58. Okay, I believe you. Yeah, so amen. But in those years, I've had the best time of my life. And my sons and my wife have the best times of their life. we got to find out what our kids' interests are, not ours. It's a lot of times we make them do things we want them to do. Okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going you're gonna, to you know, do whatever, and this is what your life is going to be. And they're like, I don't want to do that. No, 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 you're going to do that. And they don't get involved in it. we got to find out what their interests are and begin to support them in that. Get them involved, you know, invest in it, and have fun with them. Let them know that. Uh, yeah, we're born-again believers. We love Jesus, but, man, this is not a boring life. I was Sunday when we were here, and we had the, the video of the battle, kind of the recap of the battle uh, camp, and then we had the two young uh, teenagers come and testify. And, you know, I was watching that video, man, and these kids were having a blast. I mean, they were having the time of their life. And I've shared this before. My wife was, was when she was a young girl, before her teenage years, she used to go to a, an old Assembly of God church, and she says one of the biggest memories she has is the summer camps, that every summer they would go to camp, her and her brother, and she says to this day I still remember those, how much fun those camps were. She was here uh, the day they were leaving, and there were some kids in the, in the foyer there, and she started talking to them. And she was just telling me, man, I remember. I remember when I was a kid, man, I had so much fun. And she told me, you guys are going to have the time of your life. Serving God is fun, and our kids need to know that. We need to fight for our kids. There's three things I want to look at that our kids need if we're going to fight for them. First thing is they need discipline. 
Our kids need discipline. They need to know that there's consequences and correction for negative behavior, for breaking house rules. They need to understand that there are house rules, and if you're going to break the house rules, there are going to be consequences, and there's going to be correction. So why? Because they need to have a clear understanding of what is evil and what is good, and the consequences for both. If we just let them keep doing what they want, and no discipline, no, no correction, no, no consequences, then we're, going to, we're looking for trouble. And Proverbs 29, 17 says, Discipline your children, and they will give you peace of mind, and it will make your heart glad. Uh, Hebrews 12, 6 says, God disciplines those he loves. The reason we need to bring discipline is because they have to have a clear understanding of right and wrong. So when they get older, they still have that understanding because it's been imparted to them that if I make bad decisions, there's going to be consequences, and I'm going to have to, 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 to reap the fruit of that bad consequences. But when I make good decisions, there's good fruit in that. I was my wife today, I went to, to uh, I went get some for lunch, and, and uh, I got to the drive-thru, and, and the lady just hands me a bag, she goes, here you go, and I'm thinking, oh, praise God, free lunch, but I said, no, hey, I didn't pay you, and she goes, oh, oh you didn't, I go, no, here, and I paid her, and, and, and that's what it is, when you get older, you still remember those things. If you start imparting to your kids now, say, hey, you know, you got to make right decisions. You got to do what is right. You know, a lot of people say, man, I would have took the lunch and ran. But no, in my heart, I said, that's not right. I got to pay for this. And this is what happens when it's inbred in you and you start growing in that, you make good decisions. Our kids also need supervision. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Elisha left Jericho, went up to Bethel, and he was walking along the road. A group of boys, bro, boys from the town began mocking and making fun of him, saying, go away, baldy. They chanted, go away, baldy. Elisha turned around and looked at them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. It says, two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. Here you see a group of unsupervised kids, kids that were just left on their own to just run around and do whatever they want, and they began to mock the, the, the prophet Elisha. And we see the result. It says that 42 of them were mauled. As parents, we need to supervise our kids. We need to know where our kids are. We need to know who they are with. Don't just say, hey, I'm going to take off with my friends. We got to know who they're going with. You know, we can't just say, oh, go ahead, and, you know, ends up being, you know, somebody you never met. We got to know where they are. We got to know who they're with. We got to know what they're going to be doing. Supervision is something where our kids need to know that, you know what, I'm going to be waiting up for you when you get home. I'm going to be checking on you. Sometimes, you know, you're going to tell me you're going to be here. I may just stop by to just see if you're there just to make sure you're making good decisions. And supervision doesn't mean that we embarrass them in front of their friends. Because you can show up and say, oh, you know what, I just came here to check on you because I don't trust you. And I knew you were going to get in trouble. And you start putting them down in front of their friends. We're not there to embarrass them. Just say, hey, you know what, I was in the area. You need anything, let me know, you know. But it gives them the, the, the understanding that I can show up at any time. And it helps them to make good decisions, especially when they're being pressured by their friends to make bad decisions. They could say, you know what, I can't do that because you know my mom and dad are going to be waiting up for me. You can't do that because you know my mom and dad may stop in at any time. And it takes the pressure off them of making bad decisions, and it puts it back on us and say, hey, I, I just can't do that because, man, if I get caught, my, you know, the consequences are going to be severe. So, no, I, I can't do that. Supervision is so important to our kids. Because it, makes, it helps them to make good decisions of where they're going to go, who they're going to be with, and what they're going to do. So it's important that our kids, we, we have supervision. And the last thing with our kids is that our kids need love and affection. Our kids need to be told that they are loved every day. They need to know that. 
a lot of times we assume that they know, they know, you know, I buy them all these things, but we need to let them know that they are loved every day. A lot of people say, why should I show them love and affection? My, never, my parents never showed me, and I turned out all right. Because if you don't, then the world's out there waiting for them with open arms to embrace their child. They said one of the reasons kids leave home, kids run away, kids join gangs is because there's a lack of love and affection in home. And what it is is they're looking for that affection, they're looking for that love, and they'll find it in the world, they'll find it in a gang, or they'll find it in, 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 in bad peers. So it's important that you know, we, we let our kids know how much we love them every day. I know a lot of people say, well, you know, that's just not our culture. You know, we don't, we don't say that, and, you know, we don't do that, and, you know, you know they know. We got to break that. We really do. Because especially with your daughters, men, with your daughters, if you're not telling your daughter how much you love her every day, they'll look for someone else to start telling them. And usually it's a bad dude. It's just somebody that just it's going to treat them bad. Fathers and even mothers your single mother, your, your daughters, your sons need to know how much they are loved every day. Why? Because it builds your relationship with you and your child. It really strengthens that relationship, but also it builds their self-esteem. They did a study on, they asked the question, what are some of the ways you can show your children how much they're loved? That, that they know that this is recognizable. That without a shadow, a shadow of doubt, that if you were to do one of these three things, your kids would know that. And they came up with the top three in, in no specific order. But they said the three most recognizable ways of letting your child know uh, that they're loved, that they feel love, is the hugs and kisses. You know, just give them a hug, give them a kiss. My, my wife does that with my boys. She always gives them a hug, and they always give her a kiss in the cheek. Even this day, they're in their 30s. They still do that. And it just shows that love and affection. And I know my daughter-in-laws make fun of me, my, my dad, my son, myself, and my dad, because we're kind of like that side hug. You know, we do that pat on the shoulder. We're just not like that. We're not the huggy, kissy type. So if you're not that type, then verbally. They said the second one is verbally. Just saying it. Just say, hey, you know what? I love you. Have a great day today. You don't have to get into this big old speech, a half an hour, or how much you love me. Say, hey, just have a great day. Love you. My mom, mom always calls me, and, and she always ends the conversation with love you. And I always say, love you too, mom. You know, and, and it's just simple that because they need to know that they're loved by their parents. And the third one is written notes. This one, you know, they have their backpacks, just write a little note, have a great day, love mom, have a great day, love dad. Um, you know, text messaging, everybody has a phone, uh, send them a text, hey, have a great day today, uh, love you, mom and dad. We were, I got some of this from our parent project, this part right here, and we had the class, and there was a mother, we, we, we taught on this, this one part about the, the written notes and the text messages, and one of the mothers was, was taking the class, and her husband wasn't taking the class with her. And we talked about that, the, the, the notes and the, and the text messaging. So she went home and told her husband, and she said that her husband and son were always at it with each other, always just button heads, always arguing. And she told her husband, hey, can you just send him a text in the morning and just say, hey, love you? And he's like, oh, come on, nah, you know, I'm a man, you know, I don't do that stuff. She goes, can you please just do this? So she said that he started doing that every day. He would just say, hey, have a good day, love you, dad. And then all of a sudden, someone say, I love you too. And then back and forth, and every day. So she came back the following week, and she was so excited because she said it started to repair the relationship by just saying, hey, have a good day, love you, dad. And her son began to respond and say, I love you too. Our kids need to know how much they are loved every day because if we're not doing it, then the world will do it for them. Third thing I want to look at is the relationship with the unsaved. Go and proclaim these words toward the north, says the returning 
return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry, God. Uh, we see here, I will not remain angry. This is God's mercy. Only acknowledge your iniquity if you transgressed against the Lord and have sacrificed your charms to alien deities under a great tree, and you have not obeyed my voice. He's asking, telling him to repent. He says, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you from one city to the other, and I will bring you to Zion. He says, I will bring you back. When we were, taking, we were doing our class one day, we had a, parent, a couple. They weren't from our church. They were from another church. And they told us that they were told not to associate with their children because their children were not saved. I couldn't believe that, that somebody in their church told them, hey, you can't be hanging around with your kids. You can't be associating with your kids because they're not serving God. They're not saved. And they listened to them. And we said, man, that's just not true. And they were heartbroken when we started sharing with them. See, our kids are going to make mistakes. You know, they're going to they're break our hearts at times. The last thing we need to do is cut them off. The last thing we need to do is cut them loose and disown them. Our children are a gift from God. And we are their parents, and they need to know that we are there for them. Yeah, you made a mistake, you messed up, but here, I love you. And you know, there's gonna be consequences for what you did, but man, you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna be here for you. We're gonna help you get through this. We know the story of the prodigal son where the, the two sons came to the father and the one son says, I want my inheritance now. Give me my inheritance now. And the father gave it to him, gave him his, his inheritance. He said the son went out and he just started living wildly and blew all his money right away. Went to a far off land and he blew all his money. He said he ended up feeding pigs, and he's there with the pigs, and he's, he's thinking to himself, man, my, my dad's servants have it better than me. He goes, I'll go back to my father and say, Dad, can I, you know, be one of your servants? So in Luke 15, 20, so he turned home to his father, and when he was a long way off, his father saw him coming, and it says, filled with compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. The son repents and says, I've sinned against you in heaven, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. But the father tells his servants, bring him the finest robe, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on him, kill the fatted calf, and celebrate with a feast. For my son who was lost has now been found. When the father saw his son far off, he didn't know what his son wanted. He's seen him from far, for all he knew, he was coming back for more money. He was like, oh, here he comes for more money. But it says the father ran to him. But we also look at the attitude of his brother. In Luke 15, 28, meanwhile, the older son was in the field working, and when he returned home, he heard music playing and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? He says, your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. And it says the older brother was angry and would not go in. We see the love and the compassion shown by the father. His son is back, and he's showing that love and compassion, but his brother was angry. So he wouldn't even go in. His father came out and begged him to go in with him. Come on, son, come in. And his son said, all these years I've served you. I've never said no to you, and never once did you even give me a goat to feast with my friends. He says, but now when this son of yours, he didn't even call him his brother. He goes, but now this son of yours, doesn't even call him his brother. That's how mad he is. He comes back after blowing all his money and living wild, and you celebrate. See, this is the attitude we can get many times with the unsaved. Here we are serving God, doing good, trying to lead a productive life, a godly life. And we have, you know, family members that are unsaved. And it seems like they always find favor. There's always favor on them, you know, especially with parents. You know, the parents are like, oh, here's my baby, you know. And they're doing all this wrong, and you're doing good, and they find favor. 
What happens, we can get angry. I, I, I went through this. Uh, my, my late brother-in-law, he was always in prison, always in prison. He would do long terms, and he'd get out, and, you know, right away, they'd go buy him a whole new wardrobe, and, you know, they'd have, throw a party for him. And, and, then, and then what would get me upset is he'd always get a good job. I mean, a really good job. I'm like, man, God, here I am serving you. I felt like the brother. I'm serving you, doing good. And, man, this guy comes in. They're partying for him. They're giving him clothes, new wardrobe. And he even gets a good job. And I'd get angry, and I didn't want to associate. But God had to deal with me about that. God really dealt with me. One day, we, 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 he, he helped me do something, and we just had such a good conversation and just really, really changed my heart. But we can get like that with the, like the brother. We get angry. We start wanting to cut off, you know, unsaved friends, families. You know, how are we going to win them to Jesus if we cut them off? If we're avoiding them, or we don't answer their calls or their text messages. You know, we're the closest thing to God they have in their life, but our anger towards them will not win them to Christ. We, we don't need to become enablers. We don't need to participate in their simple ways. You know, let them know, hey, I'm not, I don't agree with what you're doing, but show them the love and the compassion that God showed us. Let them know, hey, I'm praying for you. I love you, care about you. If you need anything, we're here. If you need to talk, if you need to pray, I'm here. We can't take that attitude that the brother had. See, all the things we get angry about, you know, the brother was angry about a fatted calf, but if you think about all the things we are angry about, it doesn't compare to the riches that God has for us. Luke 15, 31, his father said to him, Look, son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. This is our father speaking to us. Everything I have, my promises are yours. Just love your unsafe family, your unsafe loved ones. Don't worry about the favor they're getting. Don't worry about the good jobs they're getting. Just love them because everything I have is yours. The platform can come up. I remember this time, praise the Lord. The last thing I want to do, and I'll go through this quickly, is relationship with one another, our relationships with each other. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Shama stood alone in the middle of the field of lentils. He was alone. His whole army fled and left him standing alone. I thank God that we do not have to stand alone because we have one another to sharpen us, to keep us going, to keep us straight. Brother Maurice sent me a text this morning. Man, it was timely. I mean, it was just, he sent me this, he prayed, was literally praying over me. He knew I was preaching today and he just prayed over my, my message and, and, and he included this scripture. He said, a friend loves at all times. He didn't know what I was preaching on. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born at a time of adversity. Thank God we don't have to stand alone because we have each other to keep each other sharp. We have each other to encourage one another. We're able to pray for one another. I know many of you have your prayer chains. I know my wife, all the women in push, when there's a prayer request, she just texts all the women in push, and man, they're on it right away. They're just praying and believing God. We're able to be accountable to one another without being offended. We're able to serve together and have fun doing it. We're able to learn from one another. We're able to fellowship with one another. Why? Because serving, fun, serving God is fun. Our friendships with one another are so precious, so valuable. What value do we place on these relationships? You know, we looked at what we value in this whole month. We looked at the valuing the work, valuing prayer, valuing gathering together, valuing consistency, and also valuing relationships. And we got to look at the relationships God's placed in our lives and say, you know what, I'm willing to fight for that relationship because that's my wife, that's my child, that's my unsafe family, that's my good brother or sister in the Lord. 
and I'm willing to fight and stand for them because I value the relationship I have with them. Let's bow our heads tonight.